Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Straight Talking English. I am your host Catherine. You can find stuff I do on straighttalkingenglish.co.uk. If you like the book that would go along with this series, if you're thinking, man, I wish I could read things as well as listening to her, because of course that's what you do, then you can find it. It's on Amazon. It's the full context. It's Frankenstein, the full context. And you can buy it on my website, straighttalkingenglish.co.uk forward slash books. If you like what I do and you're thinking, dang, yes, I want to donate to this lady, then support the project, drop me a donation, become a Patreon, whatever you would like to do, then do it. So this is the second part of the science of Frankenstein. And we know that Frankenstein is widely considered to be the first work of science fiction. In my AMAs over the summer, I was talking about the difference between science fiction and fantasy. And the difference is basically that science fiction is we're taking current science and following it to a conclusion. Yeah, space travel exists and we're following what space travel might lead to to get something like The Expanse, which is a great show. I've really been enjoying that. Last time we were talking about real scientists, but this time we're going to talk about alchemists. People who kind of mixed the boundaries between magic, science, and just hope, just optimism, really. So, yeah, obviously there's real science that goes into Frankenstein, but we've got to consider these sketchy alchemists as well, because they are surprisingly important. Think yourself back to the Mary Shelley episode. She went on this, like, honeymoon, elopement, dodgy trip round Europe with Percy Shelley. One of the places they went to in Germany when they were taking a boat trip was called Castle Frankenstein. Right, that's not a coincidence. It can't be a coincidence. And the man who lived in Castle Frankenstein a while before the Shelleys visited there, he was born in 1673 and died in 1734, is a chap called Johann Conrad Dippel. He could be one of our models for Frankenstein, and I'm going to come on to that next episode. But he could also be a scientific inspiration. Let me tell you a bit more about him. He wrote over 70 works and treatises on maths, chemistry and philosophy, most written under pseudonyms. He went to university in Gießen in Germany and lectured a number of universities including Strasbourg. A contemporary professor who complained about Dippel's ideas about theology kind of gave him a bit of shade. He said that he was an amazing chemist and a great physician, but really loved money a bit too much. And you see, Dippel was also a bit of a businessman. He had a reputation as being somewhat of a charlatan, somewhat of a quack. His main alchemist journey, popularised by Harry Potter of course, is turning base metals into gold, lead into gold, searching for the Philosopher's Stone and the Elixir Vitae, which is the water of life. You drink it, you'll live forever. Now, of course, we know that to keep hydrated is very important. (laughs) 
that. But no, 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 this is a special kind of water. Think Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade, right? Where they have the special water and it saves Sean Connery. He was also a chemical manufacturer. He created something called Dipples Oil, which was mostly used in a, a, as an agent in tanning animal hides and in cloth colouring. It also apparently is useful if you're pregnant to ease your pregnancy we don't actually know whether you're supposed to rub it on yourself drink it or smell it some of the ingredients are a bit sketch and drinking it is apparently not very healthy this stuff apparently stank and it was a bit of a joke in his hometown of darmstadt so lurking in castle frankenstein and she would have heard these stories is a mad scientist the other rumor in darmstadt about this guy dipple was that his secret ingredient was dead bodies he would dig up dead bodies i don't know put them in a blender or something and get this stuff called dipple's oil bit of a coincidence isn't it sketchy alchemist mad scientist digs up bodies Perhaps that is a scientific inspiration behind Frankenstein. This link between magic and science, between the real and the unreal, actually comes from Mary's dad. So, a little bit after our story, in 1834, William Godwin wrote a book, which, honest to God, I wish I could find on the internet, called Lives of the Necromancers. <laughs> like, I mean, okay, it was written afterwards when he was a very elderly man, but the interest can't have come from nowhere. It's not like me where I get this mad idea for a project and I'm like, this is brilliant, and then just do it, which incidentally is how I started the whole straight-talking English thing, as I've told you before. It must have been an interest he'd had beforehand. Perhaps as far back as when Mary lived with him. At that point, they've also reconciled their relationship, their friends again. They're chatting, they're sending letters. It's reasonable to assume that he was chatting about his favourite necromancers. <laughs> again, these hypothetical dinner table discussions where you've got Humphrey Davy and Coleridge, and it's like, so guys, who's your favourite wizard? Three of the alchemists in his book were featured in Frankenstein's narrative, and that's partly why I think they're important. First one I'm going to tell you about, his name is Albertus Magnus. His nickname, which I would love, by the way, Dr. Universal. He was a philosopher and a religious scholar and loves physical science. And it's because he was well into his Christian scholarship that actually in 1622 he was beatified. And he is now known as St. Albert the Great. He is the reason why we know a lot about Aristotle, by the way, because it's one of his missions to like write down everything Aristotle said. So this is where all of our philosophy and like, our knowledge of these ancient Greeks come from. He's another great person who just had like a million jobs. So I can say like, yeah, teacher, I work in alternative provision as my day job. I'm a writer, I'm a podcaster, I've worked on an app, I do loads of stuff. But this guy, his knowledge of topics was logic, theology, psychology, botany, geography, astronomy, astrology, mineralogy, 
like geology, I guess, chemistry, zoology, physiology, phrenology, where you measure the bumps on a head, and others. <laughs> That's why he's Dr. Universal, right? He knows everything. He apparently discovered the element arsenic, but apparently there were these rumours that despite being well into his theology and religious scholarship, Albertus was into his alchemy. He mixed Christian beliefs, Christian precepts from the Bible, with his own views about the stars. And he came up with his all these great theories about how stories from the Old Testament are all about astrology and can be linked to the constellations, right? And if we understand the constellations that we can see and we know our horoscope, then we could all be better Christians. No, 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 like, I'll go with him for a little bit. There is a lot more to the Bible than we know. And there are a lot of amazing scholars out there who are studying it. I'm not completely sure it's linked to the fact I'm a Taurus but then again then again I'm not a churchgoer maybe it is maybe it is maybe I should read the bible his other big thing was music he wrote extensively about music the way that music worked on the soul we know that music and faith are very frequently linked that's why i picked our bedding music today because this is some beautiful choral music which is linked to spirituality he took established things the bible the fact there are stars and took it to another level like frankenstein who knows his physiology but took it a little bit further to make his own creature this is the kind of person that victor frankenstein would kind of want to be would kind of fanboy over let's talk about cornelius agrippa he is actually mentioned in harry potter he apparently wrote one of the books that's uh, harry potter's required reading at hogwarts so when i was googling him to research this it was like are you interested in harry potter lore um and then not really not really cornelius agrippa is someone who mary shelley said was a hero of victor frankenstein and he's also one of percy shelley's favorite writers he ah uh, tremendous tremendous guy medieval alchemist astrologer occultist and scientific writer he basically contributed to the concept of skepticism he wrote the encyclopedia of magic called three books of occult philosophy but he also wrote a book called the vanity and uncertainty of the arts and sciences which is a critique of human knowledge in stuff like astrology astrology and mysticism he was also a lawyer and a feminist he was not in favor of subjugating women or having a witch hunting frenzy at the time, these arguments were considered to be a uh, heresy and were somewhat frowned upon, but very, very, very popular and he was translated into a lot of languages long after his death. It was still a big deal. He also wrote about marriage and military engineering. He talks about the hidden philosophy or magic of the world. He talks about mystical traditions, alchemy and astrology he attacked contemporary scientific theory science 
as he felt in the 16th century, had already gone too far. As a result of his opinions, he was kicked out of Cologne, the whole city of Cologne, by the Inquisition. Legends about him after he died, well, plentiful and everywhere, some people believed he was a demon or a vampire. He was also really into Kabbalah. So this is a Jewish tradition where believers search for the essence of the divine. But I know about it because it was what Madonna joined a few years ago. She wore the red string around her wrist when she was flirting with uh, becoming Jewish. I mean, why not? There's your link today between Madonna and Frankenstein. Though, to be honest, with the work she's had done and all that yoga, you could also make a comment about appearance, but I will not stoop that low. The main thing I want to pick out of that is taking science too far. This guy, far, far back, is ready thinking that there are things we cannot know. Attempting to know the whole world is not possible. We should, you know, we should just have some belief. We should not be so vain as to think we can know everything. And to a certain extent, we can argue that it's Victor Frankenstein's vanity, his hubris, his unwavering faith that he can actually create a human that leads to his downfall. If he stopped and he thought about it and was a little bit less arrogant, would have been like, should I do this? is this okay? Will this end up in some murders? Then, yeah, yeah, maybe he should have slowed down. We've also got to think a little bit about faith and the soul. As I mentioned, a lot of people at this point are thinking about what is the soul? Is it vitalism that infuses through us or are we just mechanical beings? What Victor Frankenstein does sort of proves there's no God because you can make a person just out of bits and pieces. There is no soul. On the other hand, the monster clearly has a soul. He has a consciousness. He's quite like a feeling gent. So yeah, is he attacking the concept of faith in the same way that Agrippa was? Or is it weirdly confirming faith? Because, yeah, he has been given a soul. So, is this heretical? Is it not? Are the vitalism debates heretical? Are they not? I mean, as I said, Percy Shelley's an atheist. Faith is not as all-important as it was in earlier eras, but it's still quite a big deal in society. We also need to think about the fact that the alchemists I've mentioned so far have all been called quacks and charlatans and been like kind of outsiders. And you can imagine the same thing about Victor, right? While the other students at the uni are like, oh, let's try hard and become doctors. He's like, I'm going to make a person out of bits. And yeah, people are going to scoff at that. People are going to laugh about it. He isolates himself to work on it. So yeah, this kind of outsider status. Let's talk about Paracelsus. Now, this is my link between now and the last series, because Robert Browning was obsessed with Paracelsus and actually like wrote a lot about him in his lifetime. Paracelsus was born in 1493 and died in 1541. His full name, I'm going to butcher this, Theophrastus von Hohenheim. <laughs> He's another guy we can't soup 
super classify. He had a lot of theories that were kind of ahead of their time. Things like targeting drugs that would attack a disease rather than just balance out your humours. And he's got this reputation of being like a rational, reforming, empiricist, coming out of this like demon-obsessed world. Yeah and no, he deals with things at the same time. Theology, medicine, humanity, chemistry and magic and saw each of these as being united by the others. He understood human beings as a microcosm of the whole universe, exploring the human body and what plagued or healed it was a means of exploring all creation, even the supernatural realm. Our body has an internal alchemist, an internal scholar. It can separate out what's useful and what's harmful. And he was one of the first guys to cotton on that diseases originate from contact with material outside the body rather than necessarily an internal imbalance. He also was a big fan of laudanum, a tincture of opium. He was the guy that mainstreamed that. He was also big into like homeopathy. So you would have a little bit of something that would actually harm you more linked to the disease, such as poison to stop leprosy. He didn't want to think about a harmonic inner balance. He wanted to attack and target things specifically. However, when medicine didn't work for old Paracelsus, he just went straight up magic and would just be like, make a voodoo doll make a voodoo doll that's great and if that doesn't work read the bible um okay and i like paracelsus because one of the ways the monster is used and i will honest to god come on to this i'm just like skipping over it now is we can see the monster as a representation of the struggles hoping for the abolition of slavery we can see the monster as representing the struggle of the Luddites against technology. So in that way, a being can represent something more. It can be a microcosm of a bigger struggle. Very, very forward thinking. All right, all right, and it worked for Paracelsus. And we could argue that Victor himself is quite forward thinking. He doesn't see the limits of science ethically, logistically, morally, or hygienically. <laughs> but he also, Paracelsus also has a lot of ideas which are quite modern, that would be modern now as well. The idea of attacking a disease as it comes in. And perhaps this scientific solution in a world of still a bit questioning, still a bit mystic, still not quite sure what we're doing maybe that's our link to victor we love paracelsus of course a bonus bonus science bonus science is geography now i'm gonna say geography is a science because it has a fee a fee in the end which is immediately placing it as being scientific and at this point, geography was considered part of what's called natural philosophy. Later on, that had split into different disciplines like biology, chemistry, geography, astrophysics. But at this point, it's all sort of lumped together in natural philosophy. So Mary Shelley would think of geography as being scientific. This is the era of what they call 
Arctic Fever, which sounds really horrible and sounds like you're like a werewolf, but a polar bear. And everyone wanted to know more and more about the polar regions. We've got the first wave of proper Arctic exploration. Mary Shelley, well, well before she wrote Frankenstein, had got a lot of knowledge about this. So when she went to Scotland on her, is it a holiday? Or can we just not afford to look after her? Let's just send like this child away to save money trip. She got to hang out at the harbours in this relatively rural part of Scotland. And these harbours were the last like stocking up port before you went away to the Arctic. She'd seen a lot of like whaling ships, explorers ships stocking up in there with like ships biscuits or like candles i don't know actually i feel like i should i don't know stuff they like and perhaps one of these explorers william scoresby might be captain walton so this guy scoresby detected a shadow on the horizon when he was on an expedition and forced the ship through this frozen region for five whole days he went the furthest north any ship had sailed so is arctic fever is geography our bonus science we also want to think about anatomy as a bonus science now it's considered kind of part of normal medicine but this is the era of the body snatchers it was only after like the 17th century that people started thinking like you know what dissection uh is normal good way to learn about the human body the only way you could get human bodies to dissect is from the gallows from condemned criminals who were punished by hanging so how do you get more bodies if there's this growing demand in medicine you increase the amount of laws that can result in you being hung <laughs> even that didn't really work public were really against dissection it's against this belief that all bodies should be buried intact and it's not intact if it's in pieces the murder act of 1751 prevented the bodies of executed murderers from being buried at that point there was the option of either string them up like display the corpse in a public place shakespearean style or dissect it by the 18th century though again it's getting sketchy buried bodies right are not considered property so you can exhume a dead body and sell it without restriction the public hate this understandably you don't want to bury your dear old granny and then someone else like digs her up that's that's gross you don't want that cemeteries and mourners start to take measures against it like gates cages mausoleums and this is when you get your resurrection men 
your body snatchers and think Birkin hair you actually get murders to just get the body for money so while there aren't any specific anatomists as far as I can tell which have influenced Frankenstein the whole concept of dissection anatomy digging up dead bodies for scientific purposes is very much part of the zeitgeist is very much part of conversations people are having so mary didn't live a million miles away from bunhill cemetery the non-conformist cemetery just off old street which is where william blake is buried and she also would have been quite close to st giles's cemetery as well it will be that she could have seen something like this and the fact that she includes well she, she kind of like brushes it away with a euphemism victor frankenstein is going and digging up bodies that immediately makes him a creepy criminal even though he is scientific even though he is pretending to be like the professional anatomists actually he's the dodgy side of it so extra sciences you might want to think about when you're thinking about the science behind frankenstein alchemy theology anatomy and dodgy murdering and of course geography propping up geography i worked with someone in one of my first schools who would start every lesson with hello geographers we just just love that i just love the optimism coming through if you liked this episode and i'm sure you did thank you so much i just assume that you're happy buy the book that goes along with this series frankenstein the full context you can get it on amazon or off my website straighttalkingenglish.co.uk forward slash books you can donate to the project as well on straighttalkingenglish.co.uk i have been Catherine. i am your host every single week next week we are going to talk about victor frankenstein the good doctor himself you can tweet me str8 talk english on twitter if you have some views on the disgusting and dodgy science that we have been talking about today thank you very very much and have a lovely week Mm